prior to frameworks like Ruby on Rails, there was a lot of decision fatigue and every project I would inherit was drastically different depending on who built it. There's a lot of decisions to be made. And so Ruby on Rails provided a set of conventions and made a lot of decisions for me. Most of what we do as software developers is taking care of and iterating on existing software projects, not getting to spin up a brand new application. Hello, and welcome to Developer Love, the podcast for people who build developer communities. We'll hear from people working to win the hearts and minds of developers, including founders, execs, and the top minds in developer relations, dev marketing, and community management. I'm Patrick Woods, the CEO of Orbit, the community experience platform. Developer Love is brought to you by Heavybit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today, we're speaking with Robbie Russell. Robbie is CEO and founder of Rails Consultancy Planet Argon. He's also the creator of the popular open source project, Oh My Z Shell, and host of the Maintainable Podcast. Awesome, Robbie, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Would you mind starting by sharing a little bit about who you are and what you're working on? Yeah, so I'm Robbie. I'm the um, CEO and co-founder of Planet Argon. We're a Ruby on Rails primarily consultancy. We've been around started the company back in 2002 and been working with Rails since beginning of 2005, for, so for a few years now. And outside of that, I'm also known as the creator of Oh My Z Shell as an open source project. And yeah, I kind of just wander between running a business and being an open source contributor and musician and just a nerdy person in general, I suppose, in some ways. So here at Orbit, we're a Ruby on Rails shop as well. Uh, I'm curious about your perspective just on the state of the Ruby on Rails community and ecosystem today. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. You know, obviously I have a biasness towards it because I've been using it for such a long time. And I think one of the things about Ruby on Rails that's been hard for me to stray from, I suppose, is that when I got introduced to it, I had been working with a number of different programming languages prior to that, like PHP and Perl, and did some Python work, and worked in .NET at a couple of different companies, and doing some freelance stuff for a couple of years as well. And I felt like when Ruby on Rails showed up basically on my front door, and I like literally on my front door, uh, it's a kind of an interesting story, we can get into that, but it just had this like aha moment. I, got, I was really excited at the time, but I just like recently picked up one of Martin Fowler's um, books on refactoring, and I was starting to get really excited about doing that with some PHP projects that I was working on. But when I saw um, DHH had implemented like Active Record in Ruby, and I hadn't really used Ruby outside, I've heard of it a few times. I was like, I love this way of interacting with the database. It's so nice, like because I had been using you know, Postgres. My previous company that I work with, my boss at that company, wrote the O'Reilly book on Postgres. So I was indoctrinated in PostgreSQL really, really early on in the community, which kind of ends up being part of the reasons why I probably was a moderately well-known blogger back in the early days of the Ruby on Rails community, because I was kind of the Postgres person. I was like, DHH was always talking about MySQL, and I was like, but Postgres is better, trust me. And I don't know that I won that war outside of Postgres is much more popular these days, but that's a whole other story as well. But I felt as a software developer, I was able to accomplish a lot more, and it was it made a lot of decisions for me. And I feel like every prior to frameworks like Ruby on Rails, there was a lot of decision fatigue and you work on every project and usually, you know, if you get the benefit of starting a new project, then it's like, okay, well, what library am I going to use in PHP that's going to interact with the database? What's the scheme going to look like? What am I going to be using on the view layer? Like there's a lot of things to decide and every project I would inherit was drastically different depending on who built it. And so Ruby on Rails provided a set of conventions and made a lot of decisions for me that I was like, okay, I don't have to make those decisions 
I kind of like the decisions that are being made in here. I had maybe a few disagreements on a few things early on. It was hard for me to, I was really nervous about relying so much on the ORM in active record. I don't want to bore the, the audience too much on too low level, but I had worked in this in previous environment where we use a lot of database constraints and a lot of uh, stored procedure type logic in the system. So if you like did something like a mark a, a record in your database to say inactive, that might trigger, you could set up some triggers to update a few other associated records and other tables. And that was magic. Postgres just handled it all. And then when I moved to the Ruby on Rails world, like those first six to 12 months, I was really struggling to just be like, so active records going to do that for me? Maybe kind of, um, how, how confident do I feel about that? Anyways, once I got past that and I started to really embrace just some of those basic things that were bundled in Ruby on Rails, um, we didn't have things like database migrations back then, even in Ruby on Rails. And a lot of things that people really like about Rails that implemented over the years, but a lot of that stuff wasn't even there in that first year or so working with it. But I felt like I was a much more efficient developer. I was delivering things quicker and it was exciting. It was new and that was part of it. So that explains why I switched and got really excited about for those first few years. And it was like exciting, new technology. They were really on the cusp of like doing cool stuff with like Ajax back then. And it was just kind of like pushing things forward. And I think that, that felt really healthy. So fast forward to today. So I think for the last four or five years, I've felt that Ruby on Rails has done a good job of continuing to improve the stability of the platform, the speed, performance, things like of that nature. But we're up against a lot of new stuff. We're back into decision fatigue era. Um, I don't exactly know when it happened, but I do feel like most people starting on a new project, there's a lot of options about like, well, how much are we going to do with our applications? How much are we relying on these cloud platforms that have all these cool Lambda functions? And like, how do, can we string together this application with these other systems? And we've got microservices and there's a lot of decisions to be made. And I think if you are a really large organization that has a lot of people that can think and become master or at least have a really deep level of understanding of those different tooling and platforms out there, then you could take advantage of that. But for a lot of companies, a lot of teams, a lot of small early startups, they have a small team. I still believe that Ruby on Rails is a really good platform for a small team to do a, accomplish a lot and help you start getting into that dealing with those scaling problems that Rails has been notoriously pointed out as like, well, it's too slow, or once you get to a certain point, you're going to need to break this monolith up or something like I think there are a lot of patterns we can embrace now that allows Ruby on Rails to still flourish in that environment. But it's not the new glamorous thing on the block. You know, I, when we started using Rails originally, I was having to explain why Rails was viable to someone that had been like, well, Java's been doing this. Like we were using Java servlets and all these, I can't remember all, JSP and all these other different things you used back then. And we were fighting what we thought was like the old guard. And now Ruby on Rails is trying to defend itself as the old guard, even though it still feels like a pretty lean, robust platform. I think Ruby on Rails has set the example for a number of years. The thing I would say, and I was listening to the DHH interview you did earlier, um, a couple months ago uh, on my way over to my office, and I was thinking a little bit, like the thing that I would be most critical of Ruby on Rails is I think it suffers from, in a weird way, its own success in that a lot of the people that were early adopters of Ruby on Rails either continued to be early adopters and kept going off and exploring new technologies, or they created a really profitable business or created some sort of business and they're they're busy tweeting and writing articles about running a business, having employees, scaling their business. You don't have the CEO of Shopify talking about how great Ruby on Rails is anymore. There's a vacuum now, I think, in the community of not having enough of those 
excited, energetic people that are adopting it and talking about all the new things you can do with it because it's been around for so long. So I think there's a marketing branding problem within the Ruby on Rails community. And I think there's ways to the community can do it. Like, like the Rails website hasn't been updated in, in a number of years. And that, that's okay. It's just, I think it, last time I even looked at it, it was like still like had like a Ruby on Rails 5.0 like tutorial on the page. Um, as an example, I'm just like, that's just not getting the sort of attention because, you know, even DHH is focused on running his business and growing and they're writing books about other things. And so we're just missing out on some of that early excited evangelism that I think a lot of these new technologies do benefit from because someone's going to be the first person to go plant that new stick out and be like, look what we're doing over here. So it's a battle of ideas and patterns and approaches. And I think Ruby on Rails can excel again, but it's going to take a conscious effort by people to step up and share and talk about it. And maybe me talking about it here is one way of doing that, but it's just, I'm also not trying to work on a lot of new startup projects for my company. We like to take over existing applications and make them better is typically what we're working on. Um, It's not the only type of projects, but that is what we've been known to be doing for several years now. And so that also doesn't come across as super glamorous, but I also think that's a discussion the community as a software development community, I think needs to have in terms of most of what we do as software developers is taking care of and iterating on existing software projects, not getting to start a brand new shiny project. So it's great that teams do get those opportunities to do that when they do, but most people joining a job, that's not going to be your first task is to spin up a brand new application. You're going to start working on an existing project that's already proven some value and the company can now hire people to work on it. Yeah, what do you think about the role of of maintenance versus new creation and you know in terms of code and infrastructure and I'd love to hear your perspective on balancing out, you know, new creation versus maintaining the systems that are already there. So I run a po- I have a podcast called Maintainable and I talk with people about dealing with the challenges related to technical debt and legacy code and anecdotally it seems like a lot of teams are trying to aim for, you know, once they get to a certain point where they have a large enough team and they're kind of outside of that early MVP, constantly pivoting mode, they are trying to spend approximately a third, earmark about a third of their developer time to work on improving the existing applications and platform to basically iron out the issues, the things that are causing them some friction, slowing them down, so that when they're using that other 70%, they're being more effective. Because I think a lot of teams might keep focusing so much on shipping new things and maybe cutting corners at times to get those things out. And I think that's that's definitely okay as long as you, there's a process for when you decide to, how to go about prioritizing cleaning up a little bit along the way. So it seems like the teams that have done a good job of making that part of their ecosystem where they're not needing, the developers aren't needing to have big, laborious debates with the product owners on prioritizing and dealing with technical debt or maintenance type work that may seemingly not have much value to their customers. It seems like they're trying to approximately earmark around 30% of time to that sort of thing. I think what I've also heard is that, and my, my take is that I don't think you can separate that work out from different, like different teams. Like if you have just a maintenance team, that's all they deal with. Maybe if there's some rotational thing, but I think if you're someone that's shipping code and you're not also responsible for coming back and cleaning things up or re- refactoring a little bit of what you had worked on, then I think that can cause a different sort of problem in organizations where, like, well, it'll be someone else's problem and then it might cause some issues between, because I feel like by doing that maintenance work, those refactoring type tasks, you get better at building the new stuff because you're like, oh, right, I don't want to make that mistake because there's a lot of companies that might take that strategy and be like, we're just ship, ship, ship over here and then we have to pay other people to provide support and refactor behind the scenes. 
it shouldn't be seen as like support work as much as like that's really important work to make things more efficient and because really it's not just about making the code better it's about making your own life as a developer better so that you can feel more efficient on because once you get to the certain point where you've got too much in your way and everything like if your ci pipeline takes too long or your tests are super brittle and flaky then you have a different sort of problem where you just become you stop trusting the system that you're a part of and then when people leave and come and go then it becomes even more challenging to like kind of ever really get back to that state of feeling like you have a cohesive stable platform that can survive team changes which are inevitable at some point or another what are some ways you've seen companies or teams build that culture of maintenance and willingness to do that type of work on a consistent basis? What what are some practical things you've seen that work well? I think if you are a team, like a lot of the people I've I've spoken to about this seems to be that they're when they have like a CTO or someone higher up in the business that like maybe one of the co-founders had that technical background, they seem to just try to bake that in early on and think it like this is important to us. I say that with some caveats that I've also talked to a lot of companies of that type where you got the CTO of a company who's day-to-day working in and out of code all the time as well. And so I'm like, well, you're at a different point than you will be like in five years where you probably won't be working in code. What will your culture look like then? Because sometimes those CTOs that are coders might be kind of save the day type people as well. And then they go in and like deal with all the messy stuff because they don't want to bother their other developers with those sort of things. So that can create some problems too. But I think if you have that sort of formula if you're like following say some sort of like say scrum or something type of approach where you've got a product owner and you've got your software you know development team they're all collaborating and then that product owner is knowing that we're going to they're advocating for technical debt to get addressed because they've heard it and they've listened and they, so I think if those seem to be healthy teams where those people seem to understand it because the engineers on that team have done a good job of explaining the business value so I think if anything that developers struggle with is communicating the like how is this going to help the business and this isn't just making my life as a developer better because I think when they focus too much on themselves then that's not the product owner's responsibility is to make sure that you love your job it's that you're they're shipping the right things to the customers for the product that's an important part of it that's not their primary focus that's needs to be your responsibility as a developer is to be looking out for yourself but you think you need to be able to connect that back to the like why is it so important to you because you want to be able to deliver more value and, and more consistently or at a higher velocity the number of features and updates that you're making that the customers care about or you're making things faster which is better for the customer, you know, the end users, or things more efficient, and like you're removing some of the things like oh, this area of the application is very fragile at times. That causes like maybe there's churn in your customer retention because of that. So there are ways to connect those things, and or it takes too long for us to get feedback from our clients when we're shipping out a new feature to like our test users because of our CI pipeline takes too long, or we've got a really brittle test, or it needs a lot of manual QAing because that's just the way we're set up at the moment. So there's a lot of those different things, I think, combinations that come into play. I wish it seems like the teams that talk about it and require it to be part of the process and then figure out how to think about it on the system level, and so it's part of their workflow and ethos is important. I think it's the teams that are like, one day we'll eventually get to have that conversation or the ones that are probably struggling with it and you may or may not be able to figure that out on your own, or you might need to like maybe hire a consultant or someone to come in to help you figure that out. Yeah, so you're involved in a lot of a lot of stuff. So Planet Argon, Oh My Z Shell, 
your band of the mighty Missoula is thinking about all of those areas where you, you have impact and do work. I'm interested in your personal heuristic for deciding when to do something new versus when to work on maintaining something that's already there. That's an interesting question. So I'm not a software developer that loves to code. I don't love code for the sake of writing code. I am interested in the output of it. And so I always you know, share the story that I feel like the number of different ways that my dad failed to get me excited about becoming a software developer when I was a kid. He works in IT, still works in Silicon Valley in hardware. And he's like, you should get into software. Since I was five, he's been advocating. I'm 41 now. So he thinks he convinced me to do it eventually. But I <laughs> was not excited about the idea at all. And I have a couple of I think it was hard for me to understand why software could be exciting. And I still feel that way to some degree. It, I only learned to write software because I wanted to throw some things on the internet. Like, oh, I, I, sell, I want to sell stickers on the internet. So I'm like, how do I make a web page so I can allow people to place orders online? So my very first like e-commerce site back in, like I think it was like 97, was a, um, a site where you could go place an order for a sticker. You can buy it. You can like actually do a credit card processing. You make a request, and then I would send you an email that says, here's where you send a couple dollars to. And I would it would create like save their information into a CSV or a text file, basically, that I would FTP into the server and go look at and say, look, I got a couple new orders. Kind of I mean, like mail orders was the thing, you know, I was into zines and punk music and selling stickers for punk bands and stuff like that. And that was what I wanted to do. And so and then I had a zine as well, and I wanted to put the content up online. So I figured out how to make a web page where you can have lots of different pages and show articles and photos and stuff like that. So I learned some basics of like HTML, CSS, and a little bit of scripting to accomplish those things. And I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. I can use this for other people's projects as well. But it never came out of like, I want to learn to code. What can I do this with? It's more like, I want to do this thing. I guess I need to learn some code because I can't afford to pay anyone because like I don't have any money to pay someone to do this. So I had to figure that out myself. And so that basically became a trend. Eventually, I had some doors open up where I got a job working, doing some coding, and and here here I am, you know, many many years later, a couple decades later, um, having written software. And the funny thing is, like, oh my Z shell. Another topic I think we're going to talk about is like when it comes to like swag and things for the community is thinking. I now have an open source project that sells stickers, <laughs> and it like full circle. Like I always wanted to sell stickers. I wanted to have a sticker company, and now I'm selling stickers almost every day on the internet <laughs> because of some software I wrote. And so. It, Kind of weird way to go about doing that, but I succeeded there. So, but when I come back to your original question on the when the new versus when just to maintain something, so something like Oh My Z Shell, the funny story is there is like I only created it for a couple of mainly to kind of encourage a couple of my coworkers to switch from Bash to Z Shell because when we were pairing on some code, they would be using Bash and I'd be trying to write something you know on their computer, and I'm, I was like, Oh, you don't have these shortcuts in here. I'm like. Ugh. Come on, just just copy my Z shell configuration over. And your life will be better. I promise. They're like, eh, I'm skeptical of using this copy paste of all those weird recipes that Robbie has found from his peers in the um, the developer world back then. And so, after a long time of trying to figure out how to encourage them to do that and failing miserably at getting them excited to switch from Bash to Z shell. Because some people really want to understand how things work before they use them. I'm not that kind of person. I'm like, oh, cool, this will get me, you know, part of the way there. Great, I'll do that, and then I'll, I'll figure it out from there. I don't need to understand all the inner workings or everything for me to feel comfortable. And I know there's people that do appreciate that. So 
I ended up creating um, a Git repository one weekend thinking, okay, I'm just going to toss my configuration file because I didn't immediately understand what it all did either because I was copying and pasting from like prior to GitHub having like a gist, we had um, Pasty and a couple of other sites where you could share some code snippets online. And so people would share like, here's some Z shell configuration things. And I would copy paste things and be like, oh, cool. It may change my terminal prompt a little bit. Here's some cool shortcuts. So I tried to document what was in my file because I had accumulated things over a couple of years of using Z shell. And as I was doing them, like, oh, these are kind of like-minded things. I'll stick these over here and kind of reorganize the file. I'm like, oh, why don't I just put these in separate files? I'm like, oh, cool. I, I've got like a collection of functions and I've got some aliases in another file. And I'll just like, I'll just kind of like load them all into one, you know, just clean this up a little bit and have a nicer directory structure. And I'm like, oh, I'll just slap on a name for it. And so I had another project called Oh My Science, which was like a fun little Twitter thing that I had worked on. And I just kind of like, oh, I'll just call this Oh My Z Shell. I put a README and threw it up in GitHub, and then on the, the following workday, I shared it with my coworkers. They all installed it because it had the instructions and a little bit of documentation. Hmm. And then within a day, someone was like, "Hey, I want to change the color of my prompt," and I'm like, "Why?" And they're like, "Because I don't like the colors." I'm like, "But I have the best prompt." I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, how do I do that? So I'm like, oh, I guess what if we come up with an idea for like themes? So I'm like, all right, you have, there's like a Carlos one, there's a Gary one, there's an Allison one, there's a Robbie one. We each have our own one in this directory for themes. You can change the colors to your heart's desire and change the prompt. That's how themes came about. So I didn't like start off this project thinking, oh, I'm going to do this thing and share it with the wider community. It was like, I just wanted my coworkers to install Z Shell so that we can pair and I would have all my aliases and shortcuts there. So I succeeded. Now, there's a lot of people on the internet that have that. So if we're ever pairing, I get that benefit, I suppose, now as well. But that was kind of how that started. It didn't have plugins. It didn't all the things that people love about OMAZ Shell didn't exist for weeks to months of when I first released it. And so I think it goes back to that like scratching your own itch, but I wasn't even scratching my own itch. I was just kind of like subjecting my coworkers to my <laughs> preference for how to do things in the command line. I don't understand how like things make sense sometimes. But anyways, so I didn't intentionally start something new. Um, there, but when it comes to like having a band or running a company, I'm very nervous about starting pet projects because I understand the long term cost of it. And like I have a blog post somewhere, on, I think it's on Medium or, or the Planet Argon blog, where I talked about five or six different products that we were going to create that we created within Planet Argon that we were going to release. One of them was like a time tracking application. It's probably the one that we spent the most time over a number of years working on. That we used ourselves, and we were going to like take it to the market at some point. And then I think it was about 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago, one night, like it was end of December. And I was like, you know what? I'm killing this because I've looked at how much time we had spent maintaining it and working on it. I was like, we're not going to go up and compete with Harvest. We just don't, we're not that company. Like, let's just, we're a really good consultancy. We do this really well. We're trying to figure out how to become a product company. I'm like, this is distracting us as a business. And so I was like, I'm killing the project, sign up for Harvest. We switched over. Nobody's complained, and we've been more profitable as a business, I think, since we made those decisions. So I'm very. whenever the team wants to talk about new, fun projects, it's more like, okay, well, what's the long-term cost of that going to be maintaining it? We have a couple of internal projects that we use to do things like sync our time from Harvest to like Jira tickets and stuff like that. Um, we've talked about maybe releasing that at some point, but I'm like, I'd probably rather just open source that and see if people want to use it. I don't want to be responsible for being accountable to anyone else for these projects. So I think about it when I projects, are we being accountable to ourselves? Is just doing something to help automate something internally? Or is this going to benefit? Like it's not something we're going to be taking to market. So let's think about it from an open source perspective or something. Like how do we share? But even sharing something on open source 
comes with the consequences of being responsive and being good stewards of that code, as I've learned from starting an open Z shell and seeing what happens after the project grows at the rate that it did and being like, well, this is way bigger than what I could handle. So, so I don't know that I have a really succinct answer to that outside of I'm very nervous about starting new projects because I like to just take care of the ones that I've already kind of started out on. And but there are times where I'm like, there's curiosities that I have. And you, know, you mentioned like the band as well. Like I knew that like as a musician, I was feeling like I was in a lull for a really long time of not feeling inspired, or I didn't feel like I was growing as a musician because I didn't have people to get real-time feedback with. And so there was a point where like, okay, I have all this equipment and either I'm gonna get rid of a bunch of my music equipment because I'm not going to be a musician like at the way that I thought I was, and that's okay. Maybe I need to have all this gear stop taunting me. I'm not a gear junkie. I'm more interested in like what I can do with the music than it's another part of like the music world is not that different than the software world in the sense that like you can meet up with some really talented software engineers at a conference over lunch or something and be like, so tell me a little bit about yourself. And then they can't have any conversation that doesn't involve getting really low level into the code. And it's like that in the music world as well, where it'd be like, hey, everybody, I'm not like the greatest musician and I not a gear nerd, but I, I can't get away from having conversations about like the tooling and like the, what the new cool thing is. And it's like, it's the same conversations just about a different thing. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the quote that I'm going to butcher around this concept that when art critics sit together, they talk about form and style and theory. And when artists get together, they talk about where to find cheap turpentine. <laughs> That's funny. Well, when it comes to tooling, you know, the conversation around musicians talking about gear and engineers talking about low-level stuff, you know, I'm curious about your own philosophy of tooling, and you can either answer it in terms of when you're creating tooling or when you're assessing tooling to use. So I just love to hear what's, what goes through your head as you're making those decisions. Sure. So... I mean, one of the benefits of running an agency is that I don't end up having to make a lot of tooling decisions on a day-to-day level because I'm not the one usually coding on the projects as at that low level on a regular basis. But there is a the thing that we talk about internally with our engineers and when we're kind of navigating things, because let's just take like the Ruby on Rails community as an example. So using Rails as a tool, like that's a no-brainer for me. Like I'm, I don't think it always works, makes sense for every type of scenario, but for a lot of types of projects that we talk to, um, it makes sense for. And we've also helped companies escape Ruby on Rails to switch over to something else. Like, oh, you didn't need your own e-commerce application using all this custom Rails. Like, you're probably fine with something like Shopify. Let's help you get out of this and into something that's someone else is taking care of this. You don't need to spend all that money anymore. So that, in that kind of capacity. So I don't think we're definitely in like not all the time with that. But when it comes to like say libraries, especially with open source third-party libraries like Ruby Gems in our ecosystem and like you know in JavaScript world, you got your, you know, all your NPM modules and all those things as well. One of the things that a lot of people are concerned about with is taking on technical debt by being reliant on someone else's code and not knowing how that's going to pan out. And so there's a couple of different ways that what ends up happening. So you use a Ruby gem that say integrates with your credit card company, um, or everybody's using Stripe nowadays or whatever. But let's say you're, you're you're using some sort of Ruby gem and you do that today, but fast forward five years, is that Ruby gem still getting updated as Ruby's updating the syntax and as Rails API has changed over the years? And how, are, how compatible are those continuing to be? Oops, someone created a different version of that. And now that person that was working on that, it's like, well, I'm not going to keep taking care of this one anymore. I'm no longer supporting this one because... This other one's now a good replacement, and that's what I would recommend you switch to. Well, if you weren't 
kind of keeping up already with what that developer was doing. And then you're like, oh, I'm now you're finally getting a chance to go through that upgrade process, like with Ruby and or Rails. And you're like, oh, this Ruby gem isn't going to come with us. Seemingly, they're advocating that we switch over to this other one. So now we've got another project, which is not a, we have to like reintegrate with a different Ruby gem, or do should we have written our own to begin with? And then there's people that will kind of argue for that. But I'm not a big advocate for that because one of the things that's so great about open source is that you can literally open up the source and then do it. So I'm always more of an advocate for if the migration from one gem to another isn't too too much of a hurdle. You can always fork that existing Ruby gem you were working on and kind of just at least take a assess the situation and be like, can you take over your own version of that gem and be like, okay, we're going to update the syntax to make it compliant with the new version of Ruby and or deal with some of the, is this something you can maintain if that person stops maintaining it? So I think, because what ends up really happening, that's not just one Ruby gem when you get to making that upgrade. You're like, okay, we're going to make this jump in Ruby and Ruby on Rails. So that's got two projects there, Ruby and Rails. And every one of your Ruby gems is potentially not going to gracefully update without needing to figure out which versions are that aligns with and or potentially needing to migrate away or fork them. So that becomes like, okay, now you've got 20 problems all of a sudden, and that becomes a barrier to moving forward, which means you end up, a lot of companies end up putting things on hold for a little bit. Like, let's put this upgrade project on hold for now. We'll come back to it because this is a bigger rabbit hole than we thought it was going to be. And we have those conversations with companies so often. And so it's hard to get away from like that sort of problem because the problem just exponentially seems to become more and more of a thing. You're like, well, then we're going to do that upgrade, but then we've got the next version of Rails and now we're three or four versions behind. And that's a problem. So back to the one of the earlier questions about where Ruby on Rails is as a community, it's been nice to see that over the last, I think, two years, there's been a lot more conversations within the some of the large companies like GitHub and Shopify in particular have spent a lot of time talking and sharing code for how they've improved their upgrade process because they had to go through that process themselves. I know GitHub had a really, they had a large jump to go through and it took them a long time to do it. And so we, we know that large companies like that are dealing with that. So a small team that's seemingly like, I don't know that we have time to update and deal with 20 different Ruby gems and to navigate all those things. So and then all their dependencies as well, because it becomes this cascading problem. So you could argue that building all of those libraries yourselves is better, because then you're maintaining it. But I'd also then counter that with, but the code's open source, you can make changes to it, you can refactor it, you can clone it, do whatever you want to it. Um, like even the moment when you first introduced the gem, you'd be like, we're just going to fork this now and start making it ours regardless. Like this seems to be working and we, we can take it forward. And so I think there's just the benefit of like, well, they're taking care of it over there, but you can never predict if a gem or any third-party open source library is going to be around in five years or be supported anymore. So there's that part of it. And then, so one of the things, the other thing we talk about is when we're looking and evaluating, say, third-party gems is to... I'm always worried that developers are too easy to dismiss something because they see that there hasn't been a commit on that particular library in like two years. What does that mean that there's not been any commits on, like say the primary like main branch or something up on GitHub? Does that mean it doesn't work anymore? Or does it just mean that it's kind of feature complete enough that it doesn't need it to do anything? What is the goal? What's the function of that gem? Like, and I've I've heard my own team say this over time. It's like, well, that's no longer supported, or it doesn't seem to be actively maintained. It's like, well, there's no issues, or it doesn't seem like any of the issues are like security issues or huge glaring bugs. It's like it seems to be doing what it's supposed to do. 
that seems okay. Um, I've always kind of jokingly said, oh, my Z shell has been feature complete since I first released it. People wanted some new stuff. Okay, well, it's just more of like we have a backlog on introducing new things. Some of them are bug fixes and some performance improvements, but a lot of it's just like new little feature requests, bells and whistles, additions to the plugins and themes that we have. So I'm like nobody's missing them like they had already been around or they've been hindered. We just have it takes time to go through and be like, okay, this seems like it's not going to break everybody's computer. Sure, we'll we'll ship this out with it. So so sometimes you're like Omezi show will be quiet for like several weeks at a time, and like it doesn't mean that it's not being maintained. It's just, I mean, we won't go a couple of years without it because I think it's just, it's just too big of a project. But anyway, so that, that's kind of like a general approach to at least libraries that I'm always like surprised by how often developers will be like a little resistant to taking on something that doesn't seem like it's been actively maintained. And I'm like, well, it's just code. It's not like how, how many different pro- like areas of our own code base have we not needed to touch in a long time? Does that mean it's no longer being maintained? You know, like some, one of the things that's fun when I'm pairing, especially with like junior developers or interns, is like when they're dealing with a bug that may be related to like a third party library. I'm like, well, let's let's see what's going on in, in the gem. And their inclination is like, go look on GitHub and start browsing in the library to go find it, like go look there. And I'm like, no, 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 let's just like open it up in your code editor. Like the code is sitting on your computer right now. And you can do like a gem open if you already have your editor set um, on the command line. And it'll just open up that directory with the exact version that we're running. And like, let's go it. We can inject some logging in here. We can put some like, we can put a brick point type situation in here. We can use like pry. We can interact with it right here, make changes to it, and see what happens. Like, is it actually the gem, or are we making an assumption? So, like, let's you can do that right now on our computer. So, there was like, oh, you can do that, but it's like it's someone else's code. Like, I'm gonna want to like it's the world's code at this point. It's one of the this is why open source is so great. So, I'm always trying to like just encourage people like don't be afraid of other people's code. In the same way that our team's always inheriting projects from other teams, like we can't be afraid of like messing with code because that's that's our job. Mm. So thinking a bit about Oh My Z Shell, I'm curious in the path from that project being something you built just for your own self, finding product market fit pretty quickly with your teammates, but scaling it up to more than 120,000 stars on GitHub, what's, what have been the, the key moments in that path? In the first few months of releasing, so I put it on my my Robbie on Rails blog, um, and I, I shared it out there, and then I had some people start contributing like their own themes and a few plugins because it was like it came baked with like a handful of Ruby on Rails specific things. Were just like if you installed Omezi Shell, you had these Rails aliases that even if you didn't use Rails, but most of my like network of people that were probably reading Robbie on Rails was Ruby on Rails developers. So. But eventually, someone's like, "Oh, I want to do something for Python and like maybe Django or something." And so I'm like, "Oh, okay." We that's what created plugins. Like I think Rails was one of the first plugins because I just moved one thing, everything from one file to another file called Rails. And I'm like, okay, we have plugins now. So, but it, in terms of like these like key points, August 2009 is when I first released it, and. I think I do remember in 2011, I remember spring 2011, I got asked to be on the Changelog podcast to talk about it. And I was like, oh, people want to, like, there's enough interest that, you know, like an open source podcast wants to talk about OMAZ show. I'm like, okay, cool. And then at the time, I remember thinking, I, I go back and listen to that episode recently, and I was like kind of laughing at myself because I had said that, like, my goal is to keep the number of open pull requests under 100. Was like a goal at the time. I think right now we're usually hovering around 500 open pull requests. So that was like a goal back then. I'm like, oh, you know, I've I've got this. I'm figuring things out. It's kind of fun, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, to be honest. And 
it's always hard for me to try to figure out like attribute like where people came from because it's like not everybody was a Ruby on Rails developer and that was my network and you know I kind of tweeted about it here and there you know there's I guess another part of it was that it, I started on my Z shell and I created a Twitter account probably pretty soon after because I was probably within a year or two of you know Twitter first coming out and then GitHub coming out around that same time I think GitHub was what early 2009 as well so I think it being like one of those early projects and it was in an, on there that had it attracted people across software programming languages in a way and so I think that part of it, I think was interesting and so it was this new thing and I think the thing that really helped pick up Steam was people that were using it speaking at conferences and not that they were talking about Oh My Z Shell, but they would get the question after their talk of like, I noticed when you were using your terminal or your screenshots, like you had some color stuff going on and you had like your Git branch in your command prompt and like, how did you do that? And they're like, oh, I use Oh My Z Shell. And so speakers at conferences were already part of like maybe in the Rails community. And then like, um, and then I heard from a lot of uh, like people that were coming out of coding boot camps, like, oh, like they, a year or two later, we had interns coming in. They're like, oh, you're the person that made Omi Z Shell. Like that was the thing they made us install on our first day. I had no idea that I'd be interning with you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just fun coincidence. I'm like, and I would say this, and I always, I tend to be a little humble for my own good at times, but I think there is, I did have a lot of fun on social media and blogging about it in terms of like, I'm like this, whenever someone was excited about it, I would retweet them. I would give them some praise and like kind of have created Omaze Show with a way to have some personality in a way. And like, if you ever like read the, the read me, it's some of my, in my personal opinion, some of my best writing ever is like the intro on the read me for Omaze Show. Because I feel like it was a way for me to to give it some personality. I'm like this is a community project. Almost all of the code in it, all the plugins and themes were all community contributed. This isn't Robbie's project, even though for a long time it was GitHub.com slash Robbie also my Z shell until maybe a couple of years ago when we finally moved into its own organization. And it was always like this is a community-based project. And so I think people felt like they could easily contribute to it. Cause they saw so like we've had over 1,800 people contribute code to oh my Z shell. Which is pretty awesome, and plus there's you know over 500 uh, open pull requests right now. Maybe 20% of those are additional new people that, like that have never contributed to open source before. So I think it's a project that's been a low barrier of entry for a lot of people. Even though Z shell and shell scripting isn't necessarily seemingly the easiest to get to your head wrapped around, but it's also not that hard to wrap your head around. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, I can contribute some aliases or contribute to a new plugin or like, oh, there's this new um, CLI tool that's available in Homebrew. I want to make some like a plugin for that. Like there's a pattern like, oh, I see what someone else did. I can create a new one for this new thing and contribute that back to the project. So that's always been pretty great. I've always been very receptive to new plugins for better or for worse. It's, some people would also argue that it's become too much of a monster because of that as well. But but I think it's been fun for that. Um, so I think that's part of it. But yeah, I think over the last like five or six years, it's just it kind of comes in these cycles where I keep thinking like, okay, maybe another year or two of this and then people are going to be like using something else. Like there's someone's going to come with a much better system like the fish and there's like, Oh my bash, which is basically Oh my Z shell inspired for bash. But then, you know, this last year, year and a half or so when Apple decided to make Z shell the default, people were like, what is this? And then they searched for Z shell and Oh my Z shell has seemingly has really good SEO. Um, kind of a, f- a side little note there is, I know for a fact that there are people that are involved in the the base core Z Shell project 
that loathe Oh My Z Show. Because <laughs> it's like seemingly lazy type of tooling in a way. It's where it's like it's bloated, it does too much, your prompt starts up a little slower than it could be if you just did these things yourself. Where I have taken the angle with Oh My Z Show is like I want it to be really easy for someone that's new to a command line interface to feel like they're they've gone from like zero to 60 super fast. Like, ooh, I just copy and pasted this thing. Now I get some pretty colors. Things are like, ooh, try to keep that onboarding experience for a new developer as easy as possible. And there's been a couple points in the project where um, there was a fork at one point. There was another project called Presto. And this was, I feel like it might have been back in like 2012. There was someone that was contributing a lot to OMAZ Shell and they wanted to, they proposed some changes, which would basically require like a whole new version of OMAZ Shell because it wasn't going to be backwards compatible. It required anyone using it to have to level up their Git knowledge quite a bit. And we kind of went back and forth over it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to draw the line in the sand here. I'm like, I'm not going to assume that anyone using OMAZ Shell knows how to use Git outside of knowing maybe that they knew how to install it, but they're not needing to know Git just yet. Like maybe they're the person that's getting comfortable with Git. So I want it to be good for them. And if you're already asking that once they install this, they're going to have to understand how Git submodules work and things like that. I'm like, this is just too complicated. No. So it forked and then went a different path. So it's a great alternative option for people that want to kind of like step above Omizisho or, or a side or whatever. But I feel like if I've kept catering towards those new adopters to getting comfortable with the command line interface and being colorful and just being fun about it, then that I think that's resonated. And so it's persisted in the social media and content. And I'm just, I try to be goofy there. The tone of Omez Shell is delightful and friendly and trying to be encouraging. I, one of my favorite things to do is when someone shouts, you know, Omez Shell on Twitter, like, because they're excited because they just installed it, because the installer kind of encourages them to do it and to follow us on Twitter and to maybe come take a look at our swag online. So, like, I, I've had people complain they're like, oh, I can't believe you're advertising to people like that. I'm like, I'm like, it's a free thing. I'm like, just offering a link, right? <laughs> it's got an auto updater so people feel like they're connected to the community. I do think that was a pretty important thing because I don't feel like a lot of desktop apps have automated auto updating type things like when you load it up or whatever or prompt you. And so I was able to kind of mimic that on the command line interface. It's just a couple if else conditionals in your shell scripting there, but that I think has been such a big thing to keep people connected because you've a lot of tools you'll install and then kind of forget. You have it there, you take it for you know, you might take it for granted after a while. But Oh My Z Shell is almost like borderline on being annoying about reminding you that it's there and like you got some new things and you can disable that obviously and that's in the configuration. But it is encouraging you to rem- reminding you that there's a community that there's updates and we're, we've always thought like how do we make the updating experience even better and we just rolled out some new changes of the last few months with like showing a change log people hate change so we got some flack for that but we actually I do think it looks nice and it looks great when you update it and it's even just something as simple as like making the we've always had ASCII art in there like from the very beginning and I feel like that's been just a throwback to how I my early era of getting involved on the internet type things and BBSs and like this is it's so interesting that there's always been this like decorating my command line interface starts back to like 1985 when I had my first computer and I was making my background Scion when we had a you know an RGB computer. And I'm like, I want a colorful prompt. And I'm still getting to do that like 35, 36 years later. So yeah, so I think that those are a couple of things that I've, I've noticed over the years. And then 
this engine keeps feeding itself where people keep tweeting about it, people blog about it. And it's amazing. I go on YouTube and I see all these like tutorials and install guides and like how OMAZ shell is just like a part of someone's like setting up a new laptop experience. And I'm like, because of that, it's an early part of your laptop setup or your computer setup. And it reminds you that it exists. And if you follow us on Twitter, we try to be fun and playful about it and but I don't know where all these people keep coming from. And so something like Orbit has been helpful in like at least seeing the growth and spotting out people that are working with, um, that are talking about on social media and the people that are contributing on GitHub and stuff like that and to help kind of connect some of those dots there. But I'm like, I still don't really understand why it's growing at the rate it does. Um, mm. It's hard to do. Another thing about open source, it's like I don't have any idea how many people are actually using it out there. And I've always wondered because like I, GitHub gives me some really basic information on like a number of clones and it's never been really clear as like, well, is that a unique clone? And then when someone does like a get pull, is that a different thing than a clone in the data? Or is it never show that? Like, do they have stats? So there's like some data there. Like I just there's no way to know. And so I, I can only look at the number of stars on GitHub and the number of followers. Like we have just over 40,000 people on Twitter following us. You know, there's people that like it on Facebook all the time. I get requests on Facebook from people because they want support or they're looking to know when their t-shirt's going to arrive or Instagram people tweet about, or not tweet, they, they post screenshots <laughs> on Instagram. Like, there's all these different like sub worlds of how people interact with their technology and talk about it with their peers that I don't understand. Um, I haven't yet looked on TikTok to see if there's much there, but <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there was some Omezi Shaw content there as well. So as a project gets to the scale and impact that Oh My Z Shell has achieved, you know, what do you view as your role in this, in the community and the project at this point? So one of the things that I was really smart at, we had another person on the project named Mark who lives in Barcelona, who is the primary maintainer day to day. And so he's kind of, prioritizing and deciding what the agenda is. So we have regular monthly uh, maintainer meetings, and we have another person, Larson, who is also involved in helping triage things and helping, like he helped spin up Discord for us last year and has helped grow in that community as well. And we're also trying to like make sure we don't spread ourselves too thin in some of this. Way. It's been difficult for us to try to figure out how to think about a recruitment process for finding more people to contribute at that level, like on a maintainer level. Um, and so if anyone's listening, is interested in maybe talking with us about it, um, would love to speak to you. Um, I would like to find some women before I bring more people on. So that's kind of like one of my reasons why I'm not just, we've got offers from people, but I just didn't want it to be a ton of white dudes contributing to it. And that's important, but um, not to be a reason why not to bring on some other people for the record. But anyways, so my role is to kind of be the evangelist. Um, Mark has been really happy with me. Like you're promoting it. You're the one engaging with people on social media. And, you know, I chime in on some issues here and there and I'll contribute some ideas. And like, I, I'm working on a new theme right now that I'm going to be contributing soon, which was based off of just a suggestion someone kind of whimsically mentioned on Twitter. And I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to do that exact thing because I think it's clever. And I don't want to give that person all the credit for it. So that was an itch I wanted to scratch. So it's basically to keep doing what I'm doing, which is more of just interacting with the community, making sure that we're keeping the tone consistent and kind of keeping a vision where sometimes we'll have conversations with the maintainer and our um, and our triage person about um, like some ideas for things. And we like there was a proposal about six months ago for some changes to be made. And as we talked through some different things, it had to deal with our releases and we were looking at like a beta tester group type of approach. And so we're 
And then when I, I basically had to pull out my back card. I'm like, oh, we need to go back and talk about like the core values of this project. I'm like, it needs to stay easy for people to first install. So if we can cover that, and there's a way to, for anyone that could take that extra step of doing something more advanced, I'm open to it, but we need to keep the onboarding experience as simple as it is today. If it gets more complicated and anyone has to start making decisions when they're installing it, like we're going to lose them. Like, okay, do you want to do this? And they like ask any questions on this install. They may not even know what we're asking them just yet. So let's just get them installed. And then if they want to take that step further, we can figure out ways to do that. So I think that's helped inform how we think about new features and iterating on some bigger concepts within the project is to just to keep coming back and touching on like, well, let's not lose sight of that part of it because I don't want us to, because I think a lot of projects sometimes can they'll forget like some of those core things. And I feel like I need to own that and keep reminding and, and, and touting that and encouraging other projects to think about that as well. Like what's the onboarding experience to use this piece of software that you're you know, you're using, whether it be a desktop or a web application or a command line interface tool, like let's make it simple. I really wish everything didn't need to be like, okay, you installed this thing in homebrew and now you gotta go read the how-to or the dash dash help and try to make sense of what all these different flags do. Like let's make things simple. And I think this all comes back to, again, Ruby giving me a lot of that, like I, I love how readable Ruby and Ruby on Rails code tends to be. And I want oh, my Z shell to have a very, similar vibe considering the syntax of Z shell is not as glamorous as Ruby is. So what do you think is the secret to building things developers love? I don't know what other developers love. I love nostalgia, like in light doses. So I think in a certain way, oh my Z shell, I, I like to think, I mean, there's a lot of people that are are not nostalgic about command line interfaces from 20 to 30 years ago because they haven't been on the planet that long. <laughs> so I know there's a lot of people in the OMIZ shell community that have no idea what I'm talking about. So, But I do think at least speaking to maybe older developed engineers, like if you can introduce a little bit of nostalgia as things are growing new, I think that can be fun and helpful. And so like the ASCII art and things like that, like but it seems like the younger generation is really excited about this retro vibe and like you're seeing people that are streamers and programmers that are live streaming themselves and have fun colors and their keyboards are all like more like hackery style keyboards and they're geeking out about this kind of stuff. So I think if you can be part of their nerding out geeking approach, I think, and be part of like a community, I think is maybe helpful to remind them that they're not alone, especially when we're in like a pandemic where everybody's alone. I think if you have a piece, a software tool and you can build a community around it, think that speaks more than just being like, don't speak to the solo developer that just wants to hibernate and just kind of focus on code and then that's it. Because they're not going to tell anyone else about all the things they love. Unless they're like maybe occasionally stumbling over to Reddit or Slashdot or wherever the kids are hanging out these days to just be like, you know, and be that one person that's just like the annoying, like you should use blah, blah, blah. Like that's not the tone that OMZ Shell <laughs> goes for. And I don't think any project should be going for it. So I think if, it's interesting because like OMZ Shell doesn't have like a commercial backing or like a anyone full-time working on it. And it's always been like a pet project for me. And I've been very intentional because I, I say that, but I'd be lying if I hadn't thought, well, maybe there's more I could do with this than I realized. But I'm like, well, look, am I going to charge people for OMZ Shell Pro? Like, I don't know. That doesn't seem like the right thing. And so when we get some people that will contribute and they do like GitHub has a nice little features to make your, you know, your monthly contributions and stuff like that. And so we appreciate, you know, we were able to get some beers or coffee with that. And so that's nice. So, and obviously I get to sell stickers and t-shirts and coffee mugs and stuff like that, but that basically pays for a few hours of an office admin. It's not 
that's not a full-time thing. That's not like, I'm not raking in the money on selling stickers and t-shirts. It's more of like a, I would be surprised if we're even breaking even, to be honest. So um, I don't think of it that closely. So it's just more about getting to interact with the community. I'm like, I feel like I get to connect with all these people by selling stickers and t-shirts and shipping stuff around the planet on a regular basis. And to see those stickers pop up on people's laptops and sharing those photos, I'm like, I love that. So I feel like if anything, the project has allowed me to experiment with marketing different tactics like in an open source kind of world. And I don't know what I can do with that exactly and how I've been able to apply some of that. I think if anything, it reminded me just how important it is to be authentic. And so when I, as I try to be that way when I'm marketing my company, um, the more authentic I am, the more it seems to resonate with certain types of people. And those might be really good clients for us, maybe. So could also alienate really good clients. And so I'm always second-guessing myself there. But anyways, it's, so I, I do think if for Oh My Z Show's secret has been just to be delightful and I think keeping a little bit of nostalgia there, but also just promoting the people within the community more so than the project itself. Like we're not always like, it's rare that you'll find a tweet where it's like, check out all these new cool features and about Oh My Z Show. It's like, look what so-and-so contributed. Or when someone else notices it, I'm re- we'll retweet them and be like, look what someone else said about the new feature. It was way more important than look what we said about our new feature. Because more than likely, it was probably halfway written by another member of the community that wasn't on the maintainer group anyways. So it's not like us, it's the communities contributed to that. So that just ends up being kind of the ethos that we continue to try to embrace as we're figuring out how to make sense of this and still maintain our normal day job as well. And know that this is, uh, I wouldn't say it's my passion project, it's it's a fun project. I enjoy it. It's I can be whimsical about it, but I go days without thinking about it. And I love that about it as well. And that's okay. So if you are listening and you have a project and you like you feel like you owe the community something, you get to set that boundary yourself. And I've known a lot of developers over the years that have worked on some pretty big projects, like especially in the Ruby on Rails community. There were some people that worked on Capistrano and some other tooling back in the days. They got burnt out on being open source maintainers and I'd be lying if I said that there hadn't been points with the OMZ show where I'm like, maybe I should just pass the keys over and say good luck. But I'm like, all right, I just got to find what I can do right now and the ebbs and flows. Like, there's periods of my life where I'm like, okay, for the next few months, I can I can contribute more on the coding side of things. But most of the time, I'm just like, this is project priority number six in my life right now. It's not going to make the top five, and I'm okay with that. And it might be surprising because I think a lot of people know me because of that, but. Behind the scenes, I'm like, I've got other priorities and things I'm working on as well. And Hmm. and I wouldn't want to approach any other open source maintainer with the assumption like this is all they've got focus on their plate as well. Like they've got other things going. And we would be mindful of that. Hmm. Well, Robbie, you've been super generous with your time today. If you wanted to send people somewhere online to learn more about all the things you're working on, uh, where would you send them? Yeah, you can find me at Robbie with a Y, Russell, uh, on Twitter, and my podcast is maintainable.fm. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on today. It's been such a delight. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Thanks for listening to Developer Love. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and tell a friend. You can learn more about Orbit at orbit.love slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Orbit Model. 